thank you guys for being here. It's so good to see you. We are um, on our fourth week now of talking about wisdom. And uh, part, part of the reason here is that it, it can feel these days like there's a particular lack of this, doesn't it? Um, where are the wise ones? Where are the ones that are sort of navigating the way through with this clarity, with this discernment, with this deep understanding. And I think so often we swim in this sea of knowledge and forget that this cultivation of wisdom is really something different. The reality that we can somehow go our whole lives and grow old and never get this thing unless we go after it. And Scripture is filled with that as an invitation to us, but also as a a sort of responsibility. Like, hey, wisdom is here, but you have to seek after it. You have to go after it. You have to find it. That, That the pursuit of it is part of how we grow into it. That it's not just acquiring some sort of knowledge, but it's actually a reflection of who we are. That as you pursue wisdom, you become wise. That there's a sort of transformative quality to it. And so we, we talked about that last week, but really backing up, we talked about this, the beginning of this wisdom is, is this approach that requires humility. That to go after truth is to acknowledge this acknowledgement that truth isn't just what I want it to be, right? Which is why the, in Proverbs it says the beginning is this fear of the Lord, which is this deep respect for the, I realization that there is a truth with a capital T and then there's my truth with a lowercase t, right? And what I want to do is I want to get that greater truth. When we talk about the way life is meant to be lived, it's in light of something larger than us that's drawing us to become more. And so we begin with humility followed by teachability. That's what we talked about the second week, which means we're open to correction, which means we're actually listening That we're weighing through ideas and this idea that a course correction is not a betrayal, but it's actually a getting closer to the mark. So how do we have hearts that are not only humble, but teachable? And then last week we talked about this concept that, that wisdom is actually a renewing of our mind. It's teaching us to think in a very different way talked about it being kind of like a new operating system and that the the two systems don't really collaborate very well. You've got a sort of kingdom wisdom or a wisdom from above, as James puts it, or an earthly wisdom or a wisdom from below. And these two are very different, even competing systems and, and that we're like naturally programmed for one. That to live in light of this greater kingdom requires a whole renewed thinking of our minds. And it's disorienting. It's where things kind of turn on their heads, where Jesus says in this kingdom, the greatest are the least, and to lead you must serve, and to live you must die, right? You're talking about two very different approaches to life and that it's costly to let go of one and to take on the other. And so to live into that kind of wisdom as Jesus is showing us this way, often it's counterintuitive, which means we trust and we obey. Even when in the face of it, we're thinking, no, 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 this is, this is a crisis to be avoided. Jesus is saying, no, this crisis, this is your school of wisdom. So to live in that place is, is essentially handing God the script and letting him write it. 
Which leads us to our fourth week now as we're thinking about this, living in this place of trust, understanding that we are going to go through times of desolation. As Bob sang this morning so beautifully, right, that, that even in the shadow of death, that, that that's not like, hey, follow Jesus and you don't have to go through the valley. Follow Jesus, you don't have to go through the shadow of death, right? That's never said anywhere in there. It's always, I'll be with you in that place. But getting through that is easier said than done. And most of us have very little bandwidth when it comes to suffering, right? Like our greatest suffering, as I've said before, is often like sitting in traffic and we're like, oh, I'm suffering. This is so brutal, right? Like, and to go this, and even there, right? We're like trying to scoot around the car in front of us. This thing, we are so... um It is so difficult for us to remain in this posture of waiting, especially when it's hard. I read this um, intro. It's by Rachel Held Evans. She had a book that came out posthumously where um, after her early death, I think she was 37 when she passed away. But she, her friends wrote this book for her. And it starts with a chapter that's called On the Days When I Believe. And I thought I would just read this kind of beautiful little intro. She says, On the days when I believe, the sun streaks across the East Tennessee hills, showing me that green isn't one color but a million. The infinite deep blue of the sky feels less like an endless void ready to swallow me whole than an open and generous invitation, beckoning all of us who are prone to wander. On the days when I believe the raucous laughter of my kids sounds like the prelude to a grander symphony, a promise of unadulterated joy to come. On the days when I believe I regard the tulip tree outside my kitchen window and learn from it, rooted but flexible, it adjusts to the seasons, offering its abundant nectar to bees and butterflies during times of flowering, and then seeds and shade to birds and squirrels after that. On the days when I believe I feel enfolded in a story so much greater than my own, it's a story that knits together a thousand generations of saints which is to say folks like you and me who wrestle with their questions and their doubts, who interrogate the systems and structures of society around them, who search for a way to make sense of it all, and who wonder whether they belong and whether they're loved. It's a story that makes audacious claims about a God named Jesus, a man God named Jesus, and calls us into his outstretched arms. On the day when I believe, days when I believe, a prayer feels as if it's just another beautiful beat in a long-running conversation. Nothing is withheld. Everything finds its place, whether lament or hallelujah. I'm convinced it's all heard because it's a whisper into the ear of an attentive God who loves me and whom I love. And then there are other days. And she leaves it hanging there, right? Because you go, oh gosh, as you're listening to this, you're like, this is what I want. This is the life. I want to be in the flow. I want to live in that stream. I want to feel God's grace. I want to notice the little things. And there are days that are just like that. And then there are other days. And part of wisdom is realizing this, that oftentimes the the real difficult classes of wisdom happen on the other days on the days where the questions feel overwhelming, 
on the days where the doubts start spilling out. And, and I think sometimes we look at those moments and think they're to be avoided at all costs. Certainly, I think an earthly wisdom goes, pain is to be avoided whenever it can be. But part of the trust, I think, in this Christian walk and this journey that we've chosen to take is realizing that in those moments of suffering, oftentimes this is when our hearts are most laid bare, where God can come in and do some of the deepest work. And I resonate with this because I have those other days. I, um, we were sitting out here last night for a little celebration for Chad and Emily, which was really sweet. And I was sitting out there with Rick, and Rick kindly said, oh, remember when we were doing church out here? And I was like, no, I don't. I have like literally blocked all that out, right? Which is not true, but I keep trying to, right? Like to go... Just a few years ago, there were seasons where we walked through as a church that were really hard. And I think on days like that, my prayers were often like, how much longer, God, do we have to keep doing this? How much longer do I have to sit in these weeds? How much longer do I have to sit in this place of unknown? And I think it's this trust that comes into and speaks into those moments that says, oh, no, 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 I'm with you. You're right where you should be. And to cling to that, I think this is one of the, the biggest disciplines in the Christian life. And really what I want to talk about today is this idea of perseverance. That I think wisdom comes from those that persevere in the midst of the sufferings in the midst of the questions, in the midst of the doubts. James says says this so beautifully at the beginning of his book, and I'm just going to read the whole thing for us, um, verses 2 through 18. He says, Count it all joy, my brothers, when you meet trials of various kinds, for you know that the testing of your faith produces steadfastness. And let steadfastness have its full effect, that you may be perfect and complete, lacking in nothing. If any of you lacks wisdom, let him ask him, let him ask God, who gives generously to all without reproach, and it will be given him. But let him ask in faith, with no doubting, for the one who doubts is like the wave of the sea that is driven and tossed by the wind. For that person must not suppose that he will receive anything from the Lord. He's a double-minded man, unstable in all his ways. Let the lowly brother boast in his exaltation and the rich in his humiliation because like a flower of the grass he will pass away. For the sun rises with its scorching heat and withers the grass. Its flower falls and its beauty perishes. So also will the rich man fade away in the midst of his pursuits. Blessed is the man who remains steadfast under trial. For when he stood the test, he will receive the crown of life, which God has promised to those who love him. Let no one say when he's tempted, I'm being tempted by God, for God cannot be tempted with evil. And he himself tempts no one. But each person is tempted when he's lured and enticed by his own desire. Then desire, when it is conceived, gives birth to sin. And sin, when it is fully grown, brings forth death. Do not be deceived, my beloved brothers. Every good and perfect gift is from above, coming down from the Father of lights, with whom there is no variation or shadow due to change. Of his own he will be brought forth 
brought us forth. He brought us forth by the word of truth that he should be a kind of first fruits of his creatures. The word of the Lord. There's a long sort of arc to this. James is is talking about wisdom. And, and a couple of the things we've talked about, you could see kind of pop up in here. That wisdom comes in this posture of humility. That it ends up being something given to us that God bestows. That the trials are are there to teach us, to help us to become mature and complete. To become like Jesus. To love like Him, to think like Him, to act like Him. And so James tells us, in the midst of trials, to remain steadfast and to not doubt. Which, I don't know about you, but I think is a little bit discouraging for me to hear, right? Because I go, doubting, gosh, that's one of the things I'm good at. And I've always been that one, the one asking questions, right? Much to my parents' chagrin growing up, I was always the one that was like, hmm, I don't know about that, right? My uh, sisters were like, oh, we totally just believe. And there was Jeff that was like, I don't know if I buy it, right? And, um, and, and the truth is I've always had that like curiosity. I always want to know more. Okay, yeah, I hear what you're saying, but what's on the other side of that, right? Like I'm always kind of peeking around the corner. But, but the truth is I've also got this, this other spot to me that like when I hear something and it feels like the math doesn't jive, I'm like, wait, what about, what about this, right? And, um, which makes you sort of unpopular at dinner parties, right? Because you, you tend to ask the questions. People are like, no, 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 we don't ask that question, right? That question is off bounds, out of bounds. Um, that question like, well, if God answers that prayer to give you a parking spot at the mall, why, why then is he neglecting all these other people that are going without food, right? Like, help me with the math here. Or if God could heal this person miraculously, then what about all these other people that aren't being healed, that are suffering and battling through cancer? Like, what's what's the math? And we want to crunch these things out and figure out the formula, right? And that was always me as a kid, like, hmm, I'm not sure about that. And is James talking about this, saying, no, 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 the, the righteous man is the one who doesn't ask questions. What's the answer to that? No. That, that asking questions, oh my goodness, right? Like, just read the rest of the book. It's filled with them. One of the best questioners of all time is Jesus, and he's always pushing, right? But Jesus asks his own questions, even of the Father, like, can you take this cup from me? We see Paul saying, question everything. Cling to the good. And so the doubt here, I think, if we if we label it as questioning, we could almost create this sort of group of people that are just allegiant to an idea and, as it turns out, become unteachable. And as a result of that, keep ourselves from wisdom. As if the righteous are, you know, the ones that, that pretend the elephant is, in, is not in the middle of the room, right? We need the questions and to notice these things, to point these things out. Why? Because we grow when we do. I mean, here's the thing about truth with a capital T, is it's just not intimidated, right? It just is. And so truth is not afraid of questions. 
And I think sometimes with church, it can be a place where we like all find this unity by not asking the questions when in fact those questions are the thing vital for us becoming a church that is growing more and more like Christ. That we're invited to the questions. In fact, sometimes those questions are a part of the gift. And so as we find ourselves in these places of tension, it's not to come in and sugarcoat those moments, but, but to really be able to inhabit those moments and to live into them. Sorry, I'm on a little bit of a Bono cake because his book came out and then Tony sent me his podcast that Brene did. Did anybody listen to that? I loved it. I loved it. I was afraid that Brene was just going to gush too much over Bono, but she asked him really hard questions. And she talked about how there's this spaciousness in his music. And he was like kind of going, oh, did you like that? And she was like, no. <laughs> like, I'm listening for answers, Bono. Like, come on, give me the answers. And he's leaving her in the questions. But the truth is, those moments oftentimes are the things that stretch us. Those songs, he, she asks him about his lung capacity because apparently he's got like 130% lung capacity. He's got these enormous lungs and he's like basically saying it's helpful when I was shouting at God, you know. Um, but you, there's a beauty in it, right? David, a man after God's own heart, I think he probably had that same lung capacity. He sang those questions, but maybe even sometimes shouted those questions. And we have a God that is not afraid of those things, that hears and understands. And as we go through these times, I I think what James is trying to get us is he's to say, he's basically saying, stop turning around and thinking of going back. Talks about the, this doubt as he uses kind of, a, I think, a helpful synonym to this. He's going to say it's this kind of the double-mindedness as, depo- as opposed to what's on the other side, a steadfastness, an endurance, a perseverance. That the wise man perseveres through these seasons. The double-minded considers going home. I I love that in the story of the Exodus, how they're wandering through the desert and they keep going, oh man, we had so much food in Egypt. If we could only go back. This is the doubting. This idea of giving up, going back to that smaller story. And we keep talking about this idea that we're on this journey together, that the spiritual life is a journey and it's going to go through valleys. But what we don't lose sight of is our hope. We keep moving forward. But we do so, I feel like the wise man does so, uh, like somebody rowing a boat. That uh, you think about the person rowing a boat and their back is facing which way? The way they're going, Right? And wisdom, I think, has this kind of posture. It never loses sight of where it's come. And it's always heading towards a sort of growing understanding. And I guess what I mean by that is sometimes the the not questioning is like we know the answers and we just stay right here and huddle right here. And the value of tradition is that it helps us establish a bearing from where we're going, right? We're kind of taking our marker, staying on course by looking back where we've come as we proceed forward. 
And so the value of wisdom and tradition is it's been proven as we're given that thing. It, it helps us. It anchors us. It, it helps us to stay on course. I, you've heard me mention this before, but Lewis will say, if you, you know, it's great to read new books, but you know, about every third book, you need to go back and read an old book. That we love new ideas and considering new places to go. And yet at the same time, Tradition anchors us. So living in this place of holding on to these two things, what it does is it creates a sort of beautiful tension. And to live into that, to live into that place, Bono says in this interview, you have to live in the midst of the contradiction. And this is what we find as we grow in wisdom, we find more and more we're growing into paradox, into complexity. And having to navigate through those waters. When Paul talks about salvation, he says, oh, it's simple. Work it out with fear and trembling because it's God who's at work in you to will and work to his good purpose. And you're like, how does that work? Right? Is it like 50-50 or is it like 30-70? Like, how does this work? Right? How do we work out our salvation? But it's God who is at work. And the wise man realizes as he's moving into these directions and moving further and further into truth, it gets paradoxical. It gets hard for us to grapple with. We want simple answers. We want to go back to Egypt. We want to go back to what we knew. And it's courage that takes us forward. The double-minded man is constantly wanting to go back. The brave man, the wise man, takes his bearing off of where he's come and navigates with courage going further. I like how Matthew 6, 24, Jesus says, No one can serve two masters. He will Either he will hate the one and love the other, or he will be devoted to one and despise the other. He says you cannot serve God and money. And in some ways, again, we're going back to the operating systems can't serve the kingdom of heaven and the kingdom of earth. They're very different values that ultimately become competing with each other. And I think what we have to be reminded of again and again is that it's worth it. I feel like this is why James is writing this to us as he's going, keep going. And the other side of this is freedom. And the other side of it is joy. On the other side of it is the right sort of fruit. But it takes work. I think, you know, when I think about that idea of retreating to the place of comfort, I think there's a, a wall that I climbed in Yosemite back in my rock climbing days. And, um, and it took me twice to get up to the top of it. And the first time you spend the night on this, it's like, well, I mean, there's plenty of climbers that just fly up it in a day. But for the average guy like me, it's kind of a multi-day thing. And you spend the night on this little ledge right on the side of the mountain, which is really cool. But you don't, I think, realize until you do it for the first time how hard it is. You're like hauling all this gear up with you and it's exhausting. And then you're hanging way up in the air. And I was sitting at this belay for a long time. Started feeling kind of spooked out there. Ended up lowering down at dinner time, and my friend like stubbed his toe and he's like, You want to get out of here? And I was like, Yeah, let's go. <laughs> like, get me out of here. Because you're looking down at the valley the whole time and you're like, There's pizza right there. I think that's double-mindedness, right? 
I want to reach the summit, but I want comfort. I want pizza. I want a solid ground that I'm familiar with. And this road that we're being invited to is, is a road where we have to kind of choose between these desires. Do you want to reach the top or do you want to be comfortable? And, and you don't really get either. You don't get both. You have to choose. Jesus says, lay up your treasures in heaven. He says, do not lay up for yourself treasures on earth where moth and, re- moth and rust destroy and where thieves break in and steal. But lay for yourself treasures in heaven where neither moth nor trust or nor rust destroys, where thieves do not break in and steal. For where your treasure is, there your heart will be also. And I love this, that wisdom, <clears throat> we tend to think of it so connected to our heads when in fact what we find from James and with Jesus is he's saying it's much more about your heart. It's about what you love. That's that thing that's going to keep you going even when it gets hard. That's the thing that's going to keep you trusting even when you're like, God, I don't understand. Even when you're in that place of tension. That idea deep down, this love for what God is doing in our lives, which requires us to pay attention and to notice that it is happening. Hopefully in the last few weeks, you guys have gotten a little more wise. Anybody out there? You know, a couple of you, (laughs) right? I mean, it's hard to tell, right? But you start noticing, I think, as you go, the the obstacles get smaller or the distractions, the things that used to get you off track, those voices become quieter. As we pursue these things, we start to shift and to change, to find God changing not just who we are, but what we love deep down. And when we don't give ourselves into this, when we live in the place of comfort, this is the kind of the hard part of this is that something in us sort of erodes. That there's a dangerous sort of doubt that happens in the double mindedness. And it's not just like we have the opportunity to be formed like Jesus or that's it. It's like we have the opportunity to be formed by whatever we choose. And so often when we choose that easy way out, I remember that first time going down and sitting in that place and ordering pizza and it tasted horrible. (laughs) Right? Because you're like, dang it. I wish we had stayed up there. I wish we kept going. To retreat is to, to fall back into disappointment. And that's hard for our hearts. And if we're not careful, when we keep doing that, living in this place of self-protection, this place that we think of as like this controlled safety, something that's in us in that space can wither. And this doubt that I think James is warning itself is not just this kind of double-minded flipping back and forth, but, but as time goes on, we can become cynical. And this cynicism eats at the very heart of life. I like this quote by Caitlin Moran. I'm going to read just the first part of it. She says, when cynicism becomes the default language, playfulness and invention become impossible. Excuse me. When cynicism scours through a culture like bleach, wiping out millions of small seedling ideas, cynicism means your automatic answer becomes no. Cynicism means you presume everything will end in disappointment. 
And as Jesus is inviting us to live in this place of courage, to fight against that disappointment, to live in this place of joy, he's offering this opportunity for our hearts to come alive. But so often we choose a smaller path. But what starts to seep in is cynicism. When we think about doubting Thomas, right, that's what we're talking about. I love when Jesus says, hey, we're going to Jerusalem. And he's like, no, we shouldn't. It's too dangerous. And he's like, no, we're going to Jerusalem. And Thomas says, fine, we'll go there with you and die. (laughs) There's cynicism, right? Or, you know, in the end, like even if I touch the wounds in his hands, I'm not going to believe, right? Cynicism becomes this weird sort of self-protection trying to guard us. And the wise person is going to go, look, we're going to live in this place that feels vulnerable, that requires courage, that requires us to step out on an unfamiliar trail. It requires us to be brave even when we're in the valley, even when God's presence isn't just there in front of us on those other days, right? But Jesus over and over says, this is the way of life. And so what I want to say to us today in thinking about this and thinking about persistence is this idea of befriending the questions. In fact, making sure that we're asking the greater questions. And you've heard me quote this by Rilke before, but I love it. He says, be patient toward all that is unsolved in your hearts and try to love the questions themselves. Like locked rooms and like books that are now written in a very foreign tongue. Do not now seek the answers which cannot be given you because you would not be able to live them. And the point is to live everything. Live the questions now. Perhaps you will gradually, without noticing it, live along some distant day into the answer. And this living in the questions, sitting in this space, this is, I think, how we are formed, how we become wise. We we ask ourselves more beautiful questions. And what I mean by that, like, here's an ugly question. Like, am I right? A beautiful question. What is truth? Right? Does that make sense what I'm getting at there? There's a texture to it. Right is like me versus you. Which one of us is right? And wanting one of us to come out on top. The more beautiful question is, what do I have to learn here? God, what are you showing me in this? That sort of open-handed posture of living in that place and noticing those things instead of clutching so tightly to our answers. Another quote you've heard me use before, but I love Dostoevsky saying, beauty will save the world. And I think it's in these places, in the tension, when Paul says, question everything, he tells us, cling to the good. Part of that steadfastness is to hold tight to the good. But some of you are like, well, yeah, well, what's the good, right? And I think, I think we know the good by its beauty. We learn to follow that thread, this beautiful thread. I love how astrophysicists and quantum physicists these days are writing books on like elegance and beauty which seem like very non-scientific, don't they? But what you find is science is coming up against paradox that they don't understand, they cannot comprehend, but beauty is leading them into the mystery. It's 
funny. My daughter's at UCI and she's studying quantum mechanics and she's going, this is just made up. <laughs> right? Because you get to the edges of science and it's paradox. It doesn't make sense. And you're like, they're making this stuff up. But, but it is, it's bigger than that, right? But the wise person continues to search the depths of that. Searching for what's on the other side. I'm bombarding you with familiar quotes, but here's the third one for today. For the simplicity, this is Oliver Wendell Holmes. The simplicity on this side of complexity, I wouldn't give you a fig. But for the simplicity on the other side of complexity, for that I would give my life. I have a picture of what this looks like. And see, the, the, the double-minded man, when he returns, he's returning back to the simple thing, right? And then there's life. Like, there's the desert, there's the wilderness, and how badly we want to go back. But I think Jesus is constantly beckoning us forward to the simplicity on the other side. I think I was mentioning to you about this idea of like three word theologies, some of the hardest to grasp, like God is love. That's simple. And yet, wow, that's bottomless, right? That these deep truths, the wise man is going to go after those things. And it's often in the complexity where those truths become clear, where God shows up in powerful ways and meets us in ways we weren't expecting. So we stay in that place and we remain, we, we trust the slow work of God. And as we do, we mature, we become complete, as James says, not lacking in anything. This is this road to wisdom. And again and again, we're beckoning, being beckoned towards life, towards that simplicity on the other side of complexity. That God doesn't leave us indefinitely in our weeds. That God comes in and leads us out of those places. And the reason I talk about this for us as a church is we talk about being a a safe place where we can heal. In a brave space where we can grow. And sometimes those two projects happen simultaneously. We heal and we grow, right? And, And all of us, I think, are in that process. A church is full of wounded healers. But here's the thing. If you can't sit in your own weeds, if you can't sit with God in your own times of desolation, you can't sit in that space with others. That it's in that place as we endure those things that an authority comes on us. We understand and we know And when somebody else is sitting in their questions, we don't rush to fill in the blank with our answer, but we can be with them the way that God has been with us. And so the wise man has this non-anxious presence about him. He's weathered the valleys and met God in those places. And that is profound. It changes us. I love how the Jewish... People will sit shiva with somebody who's going through a hard time, which means they just sit in silence with them for days. 
Do we have that capacity? The way we learn it is by being with God through our own times of struggle, by remaining in those points of tension, by letting God do that deep work. And what happens there as we endure, we become this community where it's safe to question, it's safe to struggle, but it's also a place filled with hope. And one of the greatest gifts of hope is having someone come alongside you and say, I get it. I understand. And I say that because too often I feel like when we hit this place, we feel like we somehow have to leave this space, that our questions don't belong here. And sometimes we do that when people ask that wrong question at the table and we're like, please, no. (laughs) We've all agreed. We don't ask that. But to become this community of hope requires us to be able to sit in that place. And this is what I love about Advent. Advent to me is a season of tension. Advent is just a Latin word that means coming. In the season of Advent, if you, um, we don't follow a strict calendar here, a church calendar, but this Next Sunday, a week from now, would be kind of the beginning of the new calendar that Advent marks on a religious calendar, the beginning of the year. And it starts with this preparation for the birth of Christ and this remembering of this victory that has occurred. But it also reminds us that that we are in this place of tension, the already and not yet, that we find ourselves waiting and so the first Sunday of Advent is the theme of hope. But, but there are other traditions where the first week is the theme of waiting and that these two things, I think, come hand in hand. I love this quote from Walter Brueggemann. He says, Advent does not begin in buoyancy or celebration or in a shopping spree. The natural habitat of Advent is a community of hurt. It is the voice of those who know profound grief who articulate it and do not cover it over. But this community of hurt knows where to speak its grief, toward whom to address its pain. And because the hurt is expressed to the one whose rule is not in doubt, the community of hurt is profoundly a community of hope. This is something that I feel like again and again, like every year when we come back around, I need this reset that oftentimes in this world we feel the struggle and it can feel like the outcome is insecure. And Jesus tells us in this world you will have struggle, but take heart, I've overcome the world. I know I'm going long, but I can't help but like one last little bit as I was reminded of this uh, quote of Tolkien in The Lord of the Rings, so indulge me. But they've just lost, Gandalf has died, and Galadriel, the elf queen, is lamenting. And she says, oh, for years and for ages, he and I have fought against the long defeat. And I love that phrase, that we have this victory and yet live in this timeline that ultimately amounts to what appears to be a long defeat. But we fight it, and we fight it with hope. Hope is a resistance against that darkness. But hope is also this realization that in the end, that victory is secure and will come. 
And Tolkien writes that in a letter saying, because I'm a Christian, I believe in this long defeat. But in the end, we realize there are moments in this where the victory shows itself in profound joy. And we hold on to those moments and we keep going. We persevere and we become wise. Those questions, the beauty is there's an answer and it's bigger than we comprehend. And the answer to that question often stretches us into ways that at first we're reluctant to go, but ultimately in the end, end in intimacy and in a depth of connection with God. As it says in 1 Corinthians 2, 9, what no eye has seen nor ear heard, nor the heart of man imagined, what God has prepared for those who love him. So keep going. Questions for you. These are simple, but maybe not so simple. If you could ask God one question today, what would it be? You just get one today. Make it a good one. Number two, is there a question you find yourself avoiding or afraid to ask? Like brave questions. But what would it be like to turn that into a prayer? How might wrestling with your questions bring freedom? Is there a hope behind the question that you are afraid to ask for? And so often our prayers even are self-protective. But God is saying that one who perseveres, ask anything in my name. How do we ask courageous prayers of God? Would you stand with me? In Advent, I love this season. It's just a recentering. If you get one of those Advent boxes, what it is is like a daily preparation of our hearts for the birth of Christ and a reminder of once again the coming of Christ. It's a building of hope followed by a building of joy followed, or peace followed by joy followed by love. Thank you guys for being here this morning. Let me just pray a blessing over you. God, thank you for this season. I thank you for our little ones making telescopes through which they look for gratitude, God. And may we do the same. May we have eyes to see. Even in the valleys, God, help us to notice that you are with us. Where can we go from your presence? God, you are always with us. You will never leave us or forsake us. God, help us see. Help us hold on to that. Help us persevere. We pray this in Jesus' name. Amen.